Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Elizabeth Burton is Goldman Sachs Asset Management's client investment strategist. Previously, she was chief investment officer at various state pension funds, including Maryland and Hawaii. I, I found this to be really an intriguing conversation with somebody who, whose investment charge is unconstrained. She can go anywhere, do anything. She provides advice to uh, institutions and high net worth uh, investors that isn't limited by the typical um, buckets or lines or uh, structure that you, you so often see. Her job is portfolio and product solutions and that means she could go anywhere in the world and do anything. Uh, I thought this conversation was absolutely fascinating, and I think you will also. With no further ado, Goldman Sachs Asset Management's Elizabeth Burton. Hi, Barry. Thank you for having me. That is quite a resume. Let's start a little bit before we get to what you do with Goldman Sachs. Let's talk about your background, which is really kind of fascinating. First, you, you have a degree in French. How, how does that lead to a degree to a focus on investment management? I do have a degree in French. Uh, a little bit of a cheat there, unless you consider English majors cheating as well who speak English. But my uh, my grandmother's from Normandy, and uh -huh. so I've been speaking French since I could, as long as I can remember. And um, I love French literature. Uh, I actually have some relationship far, far away to Jules Verne. So how does that? relate to finance. It doesn't, uh, but my parents told me college is the last time you can study on our dime anything you would like. And I so they were both in finance, um, and I decided that must be the absolute last thing I ever wanted to do. So uh, University of Chicago Booth School of Business, was this just an inevitable, <laughs> no. unavoidable thing? Your parents come from that? It seems like you're getting a lot of of your focus from, from your genetics. What led to Booth? Well, so I will be, this will be the first time I'm telling honestly why I went to Booth. Um, two reasons. One one is true, and I've always said, is that I wanted people to stop asking if I could do math, and <laughs> no one asked me if I can do math anymore with a degree from Booth, particularly in econometrics and statistics. Um, but the other reason was Booth rejected me in undergrad. And oh, really? <laughs> yes. I'll show them. <laughs> or University of Chicago. So. Right. Uh, and then the third and final reason was my dad got his PhD in econ from Northwestern, but he's so ancient back then it was taught at the University of Chicago and so I was wait so Northwestern grad students took classes at the at, UC at U Chicago yeah and my dad lived in the international house he's from Houston so I don't mm -hmm. know how he pulled that one um well but... it's really like a different country <laughs> it is a different country the humidity <laughs> makes it feel in Houston makes it feel like you're in the tropics so it's close totally that's very amusing so uh, people really ask you, if I you, you take French <laughs> and you do math? Did, is that like well, still the sort of thing that we ask people? I think it's because I went into risk management straight out of school mm -hmm. um, on the risk side of fund of funds and uh, and, and various other industries. And without a formal degree in, in math and statistics, I think there was some hesitation on whether or not it was capable of doing it, which which may be fair. Um, and I wanted to bolster my resume a little bit away from politics and French. And so mm -hmm. I thought, what better place to go? And, you know, it might hurt a little, but Chicago is a pretty good place to learn some math and yeah. finance. <laughs> I'll say for sure. Um, so how do you go from coming out of uh, Booth School in University of Chicago to getting named CIO Magazine's Top 40 Under 40? So that was kind of a meandering path a little bit. What ended up happening was I met my husband right before I went to business school. He was living in Maryland, my boyfriend during business school. And he was uh, living in Maryland, and uh, so after school I decided I should probably move there, not back to New York, not back to California. And the hedge funds down there looked like post-Madoff, post-GFC, that they were really gonna struggle. So I had to switch industries. So I actually went to work in, 
M&A in payments. Mm-hmm. Um, and I enjoyed that. After three years, I decided I don't love payments enough to continue to do consulting and M&A in payments. So I actually went and worked in economics. Uh, I was an econometrician. And then when my second child was born, I needed a little bit of a different lifestyle. To, I had two kids. They were both young. Uh, my, my father had worked with public pensions, and he said, this is a pretty good place to be in finance if you want to raise kids. It's mm-hmm. a little bit letter, better of a lifestyle. So I applied uh, to Maryland State Retirement. Um, I actually think I interviewed there a couple days after my child was born because they were cutting off the application. And I luckily, thankfully, got the job, got to work for the one of the most amazing CIOs in the business and a close friend, Andy Palmer. But how I got the award, I'm not sure. I think, you know, I was in my mid-30s at the time. Um, and I think I was a little bit outspoken. And I also believe that um, I have never really believed in bucketing very much mm-hmm. in investments. And so I often would look at investments in my portfolio that may be different from what most other people put in their portfolios. So I have like a half a dozen questions to, <laughs> that has led me to. But let's start with bucketing or what some people call silos, sure. different types of investing. When you say you haven't been much for bucketing, tell us what you mean by that. Well, let me give you an example. I don't know if you're in the market for a house currently, but let's say your realtor goes and, and says, um, talks to you and you say, I love Cape Cods. And he's like, okay, okay. I've also got this amazing condo that overlooks all of Central Park and it's only a $1 million, right? Or it's only $200,000. And you say, wow, $200,000 for a condo overlooking Central Park. That sounds great. But I only have spots in my portfolio for a Cape Cod. Mm-hmm. How ridiculous is that? Right. So it's a problem that institutions offer, often suffer from that retail investors do not, like you and me. We probably mm-hmm. don't have this bucketing issue. And so I always felt in institutional management that we were hamstrung by these bucketing issues because we weren't able to invest in things because of these prescribed rules, which I'm not saying are bad, but they can be limiting. Anytime you have a rule, you limit your availability of options. So let's let's stay with this. So when, when I think of bucketing, I think of a large institution that says, Well, we're gonna we like this space. Pick a space. Private credit, venture capital, real estate, doesn't matter. Okay. And we wanna allocate ten percent of our portfolio to that particular space. What you're suggesting is regardless of whether there are fantastic deals elsewhere or this space is pricey, you think that that sort of bucket very much hamstrings the the CIO to make the best decisions. I believe it can. I believe it can save you from making poor decisions mm-hmm. uh, But I, outside of your mandate. But here's a good example that's come up in recent years. Real estate, that has been something in recent years that is something that we're seeing in institutional portfolios. So does that go in real estate or does that go in debt? Right? Right. It can be a tricky problem. And if well, it depends credit, on how it's financed, right? It, it could. It could also pre- depend on the bogey or the target return for either. Mm-hmm. The, if the person managing those two portfolios are different, they may have different objectives. So it may slip through the cracks, even though it's a good investment. There's also some sort of some hedge fund structures that have private equity-like investments. Mm-hmm. If the private equity team doesn't feel that the return is high enough, they will pass. But if the hedge fund team feels like it has too high of an equity beta, right. they may pass on that. So you may miss out on a good investment. Um, so I always tried to find a way to not miss out on those investments. Plus, often those investments are some of the better investments because a lot of people have these constraints. Right. So there's not as much capital fly, flying in there. And when you have limited capital chasing you know, these really amazing deals, you can often earn a higher return. So before you said you, you, perhaps it was because you were outspoken and I was going to say, how do people work in public pensions be outspoken? <laughs> but I get the sense of what you're saying. You're pushing back at established um, assumptions of investing that we can create these broad categories regardless of whether it helps our performance or not. In fact, it sounds like you think these rigid rules get in the way of good investors making good decisions. I think sometimes, but you could also take that and apply it to a company, right? So um, you could say that 
if you have a company that has people working there for 25 years, they all have seen the same thing for 25 years. When you get mm-hmm. one person that comes in and has a year of experience in that industry, they're going to bring a new vision to it. And they may be wrong, but there might be parts of that that are really interesting. And I feel that because I was only there for a year when I won that award, there might have been flaws in my argument. But because I hadn't grown up in the public pension space, I had a different perspective on what might work. And that's what I applied. Right. So not only diversity, as we tend to think of it broadly, but diversity of experience, diversity of ideas, just different ways of, of looking at things. So let's talk about your prior experience. You worked at a South African based hedge funds or fund of funds? Well, fund of funds, and they did have an F3 product as well, if you can believe it, a fund mm-hmm. of fund of funds. <laughs> oh, so that that's uh, fund of funds squared. Um, <laughs> tell us about that experience. Were you actually in South Africa or were you working in the States? I was working, so they had uh, four offices, one in Switzerland, uh, one in Johannesburg, one in Cape Town, and one in New York. And so the New York team was the diligence team. Uh-huh. Um, and we had a couple products. I had originally started out on the multi-strategy product. Um, I had gone to work there because I'd previously worked in mortgages, in mortgage mm-hmm. backs. And as you know, that was around 708. Right. Tricky time, wanted to diversify yeah, my skill set. Yeah, something happened. Something that, happened. Right? Uh, so I wanted to try other strategies, and multi-strat sounded like a good place to learn a- about a bunch of different types of strategies. I was really interested in hedge funds. Um, our clientele was mostly ex-U.S., almost exclusively ex-U.S., mm-hmm. um, and it was great. It was The best part about that job, actually, wasn't even the investing and the meeting funds. It was actually that it, I worked on a team across multiple continents, and like just trying to stay in touch and, and trying to work together on this portfolio and coordinate meetings. And we all had different backgrounds and different investment ideas and different clients. Like US clients are very different from clients in other countries. Mm-hmm. So it was really a unique experience. I still keep in touch with them. Uh, I eventually moved over to the global macro CTA type side of the business, um, a little bit of a diversifier, which is funny because later at Maryland and then at Hawaii, that is was a big part of our investment strategy, was investing in uh, macro or CTA and trend type funds. So mm-hmm. it was a great learning ground for me. L- was there a lot of travel? You were back and forth to Geneva or London or Johannesburg? Zurich, Johannesburg, uh, and Cape Town, uh, the majority of the trips. And we tried to go a couple times a year to each of the different offices. They would come here as well. And um, But at that point, I was still fairly young, and it wasn't as much client-facing ex-U.S., right. not as much explaining and because I was on the diligence team. So uh, m- more research-based. That, that flight to, to South Africa is a bear. 20, 22 hours with a layover in Dakar. Right. And I remember before the airline rules, I got stuck on the tarmac once for five hours. Wow. <laughs> no fun. So you end up going from uh, – the fund of funds to uh, pension funds, and uh, what was first, Maryland or Hawaii? So uh, Maryland was first. I had a, a, a two brief jobs between the the fund of funds in Maryland and business school in between there. Uh, Maryland was first, and I never tended to leave Maryland. I, it was one of my favorite jobs. Really? My current job is probably my favorite job, but that is a very close good, second. Good safe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, for very similar reasons, actually, but well, tell us why. Why was Marilyn and Goldman your favorite jobs? Um, I think number one, the team, mm-hmm. uh, my team at Goldman, and the, a broader team even, and the team at Maryland are, are some of my favorite people. Uh, just really wonderful, smart, fun human beings to work with with a uh-huh. very clear mission. Um, I also really like the access. Uh, talking to really smart people at Goldman, it's the internal access. Talking to the traders and the PMs and the CIOs and we have so many offices across the world that are willing to give. You have a unique give. vision of what's going on in the world, right? <laughs> I mean, I have yeah. to. I have to think the intelligence that comes from that team in in what they see everywhere has to be uh, uh, incomparable to just about anything else in the it world. It is amazing. I, I sometimes wonder if I would have rather having started with this experience and then got what I would have been better at Maryland, having known what I know now. Or am I better now, having learned how things work on the client side? So I go back and forth, but I'm lucky to have had both. And at Maryland, we it was a giant pool of capital, $55 billion back then. I'm not sure exactly what it is now. But um, you could talk to pretty much whoever you wanted to talk to if you had a question. If you had a question on high yield, it's not inconceivable. One day you might get to talk to Milken about it. Right? Right. <laughs> and that is just so cool. And um, and I learned a lot because remember I majored in French and politics. I did go to Chicago, but they teach you know more finance, less about like these esoteric strategies. Right. And 
um, that's one of the things I love about Goldman and I also loved about Maryland is like good people and you're constantly learning and it never is boring. (laughs) That sounds fascinating. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's talk a little bit about your time as CIO at Hires. Is that how that's pronounced? Yes. The acronym for uh, the Hawaii Investment Employment Retirement System, or, or words to that effect. Um, how did that come about? That seems like such a fascinating position and so far away from Maryland. It, uh, it, it is interesting how it happened. Uh, I guess I got lucky. In January or February of 2018, Hawaii had uh, parted ways with their then chief investment officer and there was an article in a, uh, a magazine for institutional allocators about it and how they were hiring and I still have the email I sent to my husband and I said ha ha want to move to Hawaii and I forwarded <laughs> it to him and I, I was very happy at Maryland wasn't planning on leaving um, and I had a lot of ties to Maryland that that I didn't think I wanted to break but on a whim I applied and at the same time had mentioned to a friend of mine that I had applied. And it turns out the recruiter had called my friend about the job. And he said, I'm not interested, but I know someone who applied. And she's got a risk background. And I know you at Hawaii care about risk. And so he put me in contact with a recruiter. They reached out. And they said, look, you're one of 140. It's <laughs> unlikely. So I actually went on vacation. I went to work in Asia. I was gone for a couple months uh, here and there. When I got back, they said, okay, it's, it's still unlikely, but you're down to about 40. I was like, oh, oh, well, I like those odds. Those are okay. And then by June, I was telling my husband, I'm in the final four. We got to fly wow. out there. And he said, I'm, I'm absolutely not moving to Hawaii. He had, a, he had a great job. He's very senior in his career. Uh, both our families are on the East Coast. So we went out there for about a week and at the end of the week, uh, and I interviewed and got the job and we accepted by the end of the week. Really? Yes. So what changed to make your husband say, yeah, I could live in tropical paradise if I have to? I think, you know, he's a really good guy. I, I basically said, I've, I've been working my whole life for something like this. I was 34. Um, I was a female. It, it was, you know, a Hawaii pension. There's only so many pensions, state pensions in the U.S. And I said, who knows what the next one to crop up will be? Right. This is unique. Like, there's just there aren't that many young or female CIOs. Like, I have got to try this. And I think he could tell how badly I wanted it. And he sweetly gave up his job of 15 years and wow. followed me out there. Wow. So how long did you stay in Hawaii for? Four years. You lived on the island. We did. So part of me thinks of Hawaii as this tropical paradise, (laughs) but I've spent time on other islands, and I know at a certain point you get a little island fever. You're stuck with, you're seeing the same things. How long did it take before it was no longer tropical paradise? It's just where we lived. Well, I think COVID uh, sped up the process a little Mm -hmm. bit. I also, I don't I don't know if you've ever experienced this. There's like one day when your parents are really young and then within 30 minutes, they all of a sudden age. Right. And you miss them and you've got to take care of them. And so my parents, if they listen to this, are going to kill me for calling them old. But, um, you know, I had little kids. I had, when I moved there, my daughter was two, my son was four, and I think they saw them two, three times. Right. And I was realizing I was sacrificing my family to live in this beautiful location. 
um, I I also really missed being in New York. I know, like it's an island too, <laughs> and that's an island, right? Um, and I missed being around the buzz of finance. It's very easy in Hawaii to get wrapped up in the water and surfing and the mountains and the hiking and all of that is lovely. But I run at about 160 miles an hour, and right. I like to be at a place where people run at least at that. And I have to say, Goldman Sachs definitely runs at 160 sure. miles an hour. And I, I just I wanted to go back to to finance and being more like in the middle of all the frenzy. I totally get that. I, I know this is um, sort of old school, but it's true. Once you, you leave New York, you've left town. Yeah. <laughs> you you really have. And it's, and I don't just mean waiting 20 minutes for an egg McMuffin in Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> I mean, the I leave New York, I make a concerted effort to like take it down a gear because the rest of the world has a very different pace than New York City. And I imagine places like London and Hong Kong and other financial capitals yeah. where it's pedal to the metal. Um, did it take you a while to get back into the rhythm here or like riding a bike, you were just right back into it? It's funny you say that. Hong Kong's my second favorite city in the world. New York is number one. Uh, no, it took all of 30 seconds. In fact, I very much wanted to live in Manhattan. I wanted to go back to the West Village where I lived in my 20s. Um, but my husband was like, well, with two kids and a dog and a cat, maybe we should <laughs> right. not do that. But uh, no, I actually... A pretty long commute. I love coming into the city every day. I don't think, for me personally, there's no better city in the world. I love New York. Well, your commute is not bad. The, there are much worse commutes than... It's about an hour 45. Oh, really? Oh, because you have to go downtown. <laughs> yes. That's why. See, they, they need to move into the into the <laughs> space between... Right, between Penn Station and Grand Central. Knock a half hour off your commute each way. Absolutely. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about... Um, Risk management. How how does that come into play when you're looking at uh, an, an uh, a big pension fund that has all of these obligations for employees in, in perpetuity? Right. Well, risk management is tough at a public pension, and Goldman Sachs prides itself on being a good manager of risk. And but Goldman Sachs has fewer constraints. Um, we actually have a budget for risk management and technology and tools. That is right. not something your typical pension is able to do. And it's a critical need. And they often have to find multiple tools that they can use, some free, some not free, to try to to make uh, a good and robust risk management system. But it's definitely a challenge. And it's really important because, to your point, especially now, it's always been important, but I think post-COVID, the industry is starting to realize that liquidity for pension funds is is extremely important. It, it affects almost everything they do, and the lack of it could have really dire outcomes for the pensioners and for the system itself uh, and have a host of other consequences. Is it something that can be outsourced, or does it have to be managed in-house? I think it would be tough to outsource all of it unless also the investment team was partially outsourced. Right. I think there needs to be some marriage between the two. But I do think that you can outsource certain functions of it, or you can have a consultant assist with the risk management. But I think the most important thing that you have to do at a pension fund for that is get a hold on your, uh, you have to have good lawyers and good contracts. You have to have a clear view of your liquidity and your cash flows. It's critical. So so let's talk a little bit about that, because that's kind of fascinating. When I, when I think of a pension fund, I think of existing employees contributing into the funds, a source of, of liquidity, sure. and retirees drawing down on the fund, which is the the liability or the future obligations. When when the pandemic shuts everything down, does this mean the current employees are not making contributions? What happened during that period? So we actually never fully shut down. We were always in operations, and we were I was in the office pretty much full time. Um, but one thing I want to point out is that. Uh, not all employees at all pension funds contribute. Some mm -hmm. don't. There are certain types of employer-sponsored plans where some portion of the employees, or potentially all, are part of non-contributory plans. Uh -huh. Now, their multipliers are different and their payouts are different, but that's a tough situation when you're not paying in and you're only receiving, right? Um, but what you did mention, uh, so in covid a bunch of uh, uh, pension funds experienced or thought they were going to experience furloughs or cuts in their work week, which are essentially cuts in wages, right? So right. you're 50% furloughed, you're also 50% wage cut. Those co would slow contributions into the system, but it depends on how you calculate the multiplier going out. So if it's based on their highest wage ever, uh -huh. 
It could be that your contributions actually stay constant while the incoming cash flows are not. Also, uh, in many pension funds, while there are technically penalties for employers not contributing to the system, it's very politically unpopular for a pension fund to go after its counties or teachers right. or police for payments. I could imagine. Right? So right. it's very unlikely that would happen. Especially in the middle of a crazy pandemic with right. everything associated there too. So it's a very precarious position. Luckily, um, it, it actually, as you probably know, the market turned around rather sharply. There was a good equity rebound. A lot of this didn't end up happening. In fact, state revenues were often at all-time highs from mm-hmm. taxes um, when this happened. So uh, the, the worst was somewhat avoided in the U.S., I will say. Uh, but, it, but it did shed a light on the fact that um, you, know, you still can have equities and bonds dry down at the same time. Mm-hmm. You can have a challenging liquidity environment, just like we had in 08, which I don't think – no, they're not the same thing, but similar challenges in some in some respects. So, so how do you think about? I'm I'm still looking at the liquidity issue. How do you think about under normal circumstances matching future liabilities with with liquidity or cash flows? I, I, I'm sure there are all sorts of actuarial tables that you're working with, but you have to think what are obligations going to be five years, ten years, twenty years out. Most investors don't think in those terms. No, they they probably don't unless they're investing in private markets or in your house. Like mm-hmm. you're probably thinking about how to how to afford those payments. Um, so in the U.S. and Europe or abroad, they're actually two separate things. So in the U.S., uh, corporate pensions, uh, other than public pensions, right? Corporate pensions tend to focus more on the liability-driven side, meaning they're matching their cash flows very carefully. On the public side, usually they're it's not an LDI type format. They are monitoring their liquidity, so they might have a coverage ratio. So they might say, how many times can we meet our pension payments and private market, private equity capital commitment pacing uh, over a certain ratio with no contributions over a certain number of years? So maybe they say, okay, we want it to be quarters, we want it to be 20 times. Mm -hmm. And then they can manage to that or something like that. And they, they often have models for modeling their cash flows. And corporate pensions or European pensions, um, they most likely are involved in either liability-driven investing or this cash flow matching. But I will say, of the top 10 questions I get from allocators this year, one of them is, can we implement uh, cash flow matching to try to help our liquidity issues? Because of the denominator effect right now, a lot of pension funds in the U.S. are still suffering from some liquidity issues since they're, they're super overweight private equity and the equity markets had stumbled. Right. So that means while the value of the fund is where they want it to be, the liquidity and the ability to send out cash is is somewhat compromised. It's challenging, especially because private equity funds are not distributing as much as they used to because there haven't, you know, been as many sales in the market or exits. Right. Uh, So they're getting hit on sort of both ends. So in 2022, when equities were down and fixed income were down, they were both down double digits. Yes. Were you saying to yourself, I- I'm glad I'm not running a, a state pension fund this year? Or like, what was that experience like from your perspective where you are now? Um, no. Uh, so, I, you know, Hawaii uh, should have done probably quite well during that time. It depends on your asset allocation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also don't think you should ever really beat yourself up for sticking to your asset allocation and your beliefs. Um, I also think that was a great learning experience. But more importantly, I have always struggled with why there seems to be some belief that equities and bonds will be negatively correlated throughout time. Always, it's, it's right. It's just yeah. simply not the case. Go back to 1981. You right. had both stocks and bonds down, I believe, double digits that year. And, and right. the year before was pretty close as well. Right. And if you look at inflationary environments, a positive correlation between the two is also not uncommon. And mm-hmm. I think sitting back in 2020, 2021, I was adamant that inflation was not transitory. Adamant and super public about it. I I had many people, super famous people, telling me I was completely wrong. Right. It's the one good call I made ever in my entire life. But um, so I felt confident that I had prepared myself for this type of environment. It's tricky, though, because one of the things that can help you in this sort of environment is a diversifier. It could be hedge funds. It could be commodities. It could be cash, right? But commodities were often taken out of institutional portfolios a decade or so ago because- Oh, really? They, they So there was at one point, right after I think actually the Goldman Sachs Commodities Index came into existence, Commodities actually struggled right after that index came out for for a while, right? And also the makeup of that index has changed over time. 
um, it used to be, I believe, mostly like cattle futures, but um, huh. in commodities indices. But um, so a lot of institutional investors got tired of like the challenging returns and the volatility in commodities. Also, it can be challenging to invest in in something without like an in, you know that's based on supply and demand and not some sort of like intrinsic value. And they took it out of their asset allocation in favor of other strategies. So when the pandemic came, they didn't have that as a diversifier outright. They might have had it through. It's also hard to invest in certain. It, commodities, it would have been right? a good inflation diversifier. It would have. But right. it wasn't there. And once you start looking for something <laughs> when the ship's already sinking, right? Too it's, late. it's a little late. Yeah. Um, so I was what I was most curious about actually in twenty twenty two is if when we saw asset liability studies come out in twenty twenty three for pension funds, were we gonna see people putting commodities back into their portfolio? And no, but out of the cash allocations at some uh, endowments and foundations, at, at some pensions, there's gold allocations, like the huh, outright gold allocations. But they're not they're not in the investment policy statement. Oh, that's They're, interesting. Yes. And for the most part, this is not, you know, ubiquitous. But uh, so that was an interesting play. And then, but another question I got in 2023 that I haven't heard in a long time is people asking for information on CTAs, trend following, and portable alpha in order to have diversified buyers and try to raise cash in this environment. Huh, that's intriguing. Let me stick with either gold or commodities or both. How much of the large allocators' avoidance of that has to do with the fact that academia is not a big fan of commodities? They are not just gold, yeah. but when you look at commodities general, as opposed to trend following and specific trading mm -hmm. systems, um, uh, the academics always look at it and say, we don't see a real return here over longer periods of time. You know, there are specific short periods of time where they do spectacular, but over a long time it eventually mean reverts. Is the allocator issue with commodities a function of, hey, we just don't have the white papers to show this is a good long-term investment, or is it something else? And I, I know I'm calling on you to speculate because no. it's a, a goofy question. Well, I'm not... I would love to agree with you that it is the academia, but not not academia doesn't always predict the best outcomes. In uh, I can say this because my dad's a, uh, an academic, don't always have the best outcomes in terms of investing. I do think there's some merit in staying that, but I would also point out that risk parity doesn't have a deep history in academia and doesn't have a ton of support. And yet, risk parity was historically very popular and and, and it's done to fairly be well recently too. Right. So I don't know if it's purely academic based. I think part of it is the volatility, and part of it is that it is genuinely, unless you're doing it through a hedged vehicle or a hedge fund or a alternative investment, it is hard to get access to commodities typically. It's just not the easiest thing to invest in. And a lot of funds historically were prohibited from investing in alternatives. Meaning they can't invest in futures or anything right. with the liability component right. to it. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So let's talk a little bit about what you do at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, starting with how did you end up at, at Goldman? It sounds like things were delightful on the island of Oahu where you were working in Hawaii. Is that where you were living? Or? On Oahu, yes. Uh-huh. Not, not a terrible place to, <laughs> to set up shop, right? No, it was a wonderful place to live. Um, 
Yes, I, I would have bet you money I wouldn't have ended up at Goldman Sachs two years ago. Right. I, so you weren't going to leave Maryland. <laughs> you were never going to end up in Hawaii. You weren't going to go in Goldman. I'm taking the other side of your trade, <laughs> your career trade. that's a good trades. idea. <laughs> so how did, how did this come about? Well, um, I, I decided to leave Hawaii, I believe, in about maybe March, April, May of, of, of 2022. And I gave a couple months notice, and I did not have another job lined up. I did not know oh, what I really? wanted to do. Wow. So that is a common trend with me. I I usually... Uh, something will come up. <laughs> I just can't quiet quit, so I, right. I need to just say, hey, this isn't the right fit. Something will happen. Um, and I evaluated what I wanted to do next, and I sort of just assumed, okay, I'll go be a CIO somewhere else. We'll see what happens. And um, I was close to taking another role. And when I started thinking about working at Goldman Sachs, I thought this is, again, just like Chicago, this may hurt, this may be really hard. It's going to be a lot of very smart people. But I really, like I said earlier, I missed running at like 160 miles an hour. I wanted a challenge. I was, uh, you know, 40. And I, I figured I have a couple more moves in me. Um, and I wanted something different. And I thought, let's see if I can do this. And most importantly, like I said before, I loved the team. Some of my favorite investors right now are people that came out of Goldman Sachs, mostly mm -hmm. hedge funds, because I, I love hedge funds. Um, but to me, it was like joining the Yankees. Like I, I had followed their versions of Derek Jeter. And I was like, wow, I could I could go work for these people that I idolize. This would be amazing. And I'm assuming you know a lot of these people through both Maryland and Hawaii as yes. CIO. You're interacting with them on a regular basis. Uh, what what made you think, hey, I can, I can keep up with these guys. I want to play. Uh, on this team? I think Goldman was the one that said, you can keep up with us, you can play on this team. And the amount that they, letting me come here and do this interview, the amount that Goldman believes in me every day, I have to tell you, it's it's like the best feeling in the world to wake up and put on the Goldman jersey. Like, they believe in me, and it's crazy. <laughs> I think they believe in me oh, more than my family crazy. does. <laughs> come on. I'm going to tell you right now, I don't think it's crazy at all, given your history and your, your track record, but... At what point in in the process was it? Who was who was interviewing who? Were they recruiting you, or had had you kind of quietly reached out? How how did this specific position come about? You know, I don't even know if if the position itself even came about till very late in the summer. Until you know, I started in September, and I don't even know that it was fully ironed out like way much before then. I think for me though, the opportunity to to join the group that I was joining. I, I have so much respect for this group. Um, and to be part of what they wanted to do, which was, you know, reignite their asset management business. I really like, uh, I really like to join places that have something they need to get done. Mm -hmm. um, and I, that you can help contribute to get making that happen. Yes. And I thought, you know, why don't I try something different? And if you look at my career and all the next steps, they're all a little different. And in some mm -hmm. cases, very different. And I think actually all those different careers I had led me to be a really good CIO. So I thought if I add this in, what does that make me next? I don't know. But <laughs> so so let's talk a little bit about what you do with the team you work with at, at Goldman Sachs. Uh, are the clients primarily retail? Are they institutional? Is it a mix? Uh, what does that group focus on? It is uh, well. The whole group of the client solutions group is a mix of all different kinds of clients, right? But I mostly step in with the institutional clients. I don't own the client relationships, mm -hmm. but I do help advise from the perspective of as a former institutional allocator, and occasionally have comments on the retail side that may be uh, tangential. But it's mostly institutions. So this sounds like this is a very unconstrained position. You can help clients work on setting goals, put together an investment policy statement. Like you've done all the stuff from the from the client side and now you're saying what can we what can we do for you? They can ask confidential questions. They can say, "Do you think we should sell part of this portfolio? Do you like this private equity fund? Do you like that do you like this equity in this country? Do you like emerging markets right now? Do you like local bonds?" They can ask me anything, and because I'm not running my portfolio, I can have a more honest position on what I would do if I were them in that environment. Huh. So this is much broader than the typical relationship with a yes. client. So that sounds quite fascinating. You mentioned you really like hedge funds. Let's talk a little bit about alternative investments within a portfolio. What do you think of those various, I'm going to use a dirty word, buckets of different types of investments. 
So I want to qualify that I don't know that everyone should be invested in alternative investments. And I don't mean you and me. I mean institutions as well. But I have to say, I think alternatives are the most fascinating part of the investment landscape to me. And it's why I love them. So tell us a little bit why. Why are alternatives so fascinating? Here's the pushback. Let's start with this. The pushback is alternatives are great if you're in the top decile of hedge funds, <laughs> venture capital funds, private equity. That stuff is awesome. But there's so much competition, so much dilution of talent, so many people chasing so few deals that unless you're really in the best funds, it's a challenge to generate alpha. Uh, how do you respond to that sort of criticism. Well, I think that's true in the public equity markets as well, in the mid-large cap rate. Uh, it, it's certainly true in individual stocks. Right. It's, what was it, uh, Besson Binders research? Right. 2.3% of equities are responsible for all the returns. Right. Uh, it's not even top decile. That's a teeny tiny percentage. Right. So you, you're saying that, hey, if you can be in a better fund, you want to be in a better fund. I think that's true across everything. You always want to be in the best possible fund. Picking funds is, is very challenging. I think it is most challenging in, in the private market space. There's you know an inf- information gap, which makes it pretty challenging. But I think what, what I love most about it is, um, so I think I've always loved credit. And part of that is that I love contracts. I should have been a lawyer. And for me, private equity, private credit, and some other liquid strategies, real estate included, mm-hmm. they have a, a complexity component to it. And a lot of that is contract related. And you have to get very, like my favorite class in business school is taxes. I should tell you, like, I, I like loopholes and I like figuring out un, un, unique ways to structure It's deals. a puzzle. Right. Uh, but for private equity, private credit, private real estate, for me, those make sense. Those are complex deals and there's ways to derive value out of them. And if you can get access to those, I think it's brilliant. If you can't get access to those, the other way I think it's interesting to play in those markets is to is to play the discrepancy in value between public equity and private equity, uh-huh. public real estate and private real estate, public infrastructure, private infrastructure. Um, so th- for those reasons, I just think they're the most interesting place to look. And, it, and in terms of hedge funds specifically, where I started my career, they invest in every asset class. So if you want to learn about commodities, fixed income, rates, equities, bonds, they're all there, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's a really great proving ground. And it also teaches you to understand relative value and which trades are better, relatively speaking, not absolutely speaking, in an environment like today, and probably the next 10 years, relative value is going to be critical. Huh, that's really interesting. Let's stay focused on on the complications of the private side, because you're touching on something that's really fascinating and a, a little bit contrarian to the <laughs> consensus view, which is complications tend to be expensive and, and very often simple is better. What you're saying on the private side is if you have an ability, and correct me if I'm, I'm getting this wrong, if you have an ability to manage through that complexity in a way that doesn't disadvantage you as an investor, there's potential upside from complexity because most investors aren't finding um, that thread that really leads you to... to um, uh, Hitchcock used to call it the McGinty, but it, that's whatever everybody is chasing that's driving the action. You're you're looking through complexity to define where is the the piece of alpha that everybody is missing. If that is your edge, and that is the one thing I want to be very clear on, you should not be investing in complex issues that you do not understand. So if you mm. do not understand technology, do not go do a technology co-investment, right? We shouldn't all be plowing our money into <laughs> AI startups. You're, you don't think that's a, a savvy thing to do today? I don't think plowing money into anything is usually a, a good idea. But I mean, to use an example, uh, so I did Kilimanjaro a year ago, and I didn't get altitude sickness. And so to, to do hiking at high elevations when something is in a challenge, for you, but is a challenge for other people. That's not a terrible idea, an experience mm-hmm. that you get that's unique, right? And so I think that if there are managers you can find, or if you yourself are good at certain parts of these markets, then I do think you, in any investment, if you have an edge, you should lean into that edge, right? right? And I think that is why, or I believe that's why alternatives, there are people who have edges, there are people who don't, and they raise money, and that's the world, right? Right. Um, but if you can find, when you find a good manager or you find a good investment, I mean, I think that's one of the best feelings in life. And when it comes to fruition, it's like incredible and unique. And you learn so much. And you learn so much about the industry you're investing in. Huh. Know your skill set. Know your blind spot. Know your edge. Right. That, that sounds like very savvy <laughs> advice. 
Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's talk a little bit about institutional investing, what's happening these years. We had rates and uh, yields on fixed income shoot up in 2022 and 2023. And pension funds, especially in Europe, seem to stumble around that. Tell us a little bit what's been going on with uh, institutions as you see it from the 30,000-foot view. Uh, Why was last year into this year so challenging for many large institutions? Well, I think in Europe, it was some of what we mentioned earlier with the liability-driven investing. They had you know, rates go up precipitously as well right. uh, for various reasons, uh, twice in a very short amount of time. And uh, you know, because they had leveraged, in some occasions, bond portfolios when rates go up, as you know, prices go down, they had margin calls because they were trading on margin in a lot well, of cases. Were there duration issues also? Because I know some, some areas seem to be invested very long and they're much more sensitive to rate moves than, than others. Is that part of the issue? Were they mandated to have longer dated bonds? What, what well, seemed to happen in Europe? It's p- part of the liability matching, right? So if you have a infinitely lived asset or a very long lived asset, you're going to want to match the, your, your investments to that. So that's why they had some of these longer term bonds. U.S. pension funds also had a fair degree of long bond exposure and they hurt. Um, you know, I think in 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 the 2008 crisis, a lot of pension fund boards struggled with the fact that their equity portfolio and their bond portfolio and credit portfolio all stumbled around the same time. And it's it's why you saw in 2010, 2011, 2012, a lot of the investment policy statements of pension funds changed from saying equity and fixed income to saying growth risk and diversifying risk. Hmm. And I, I don't know that anyone would really notice that unless they were working in it, but that is what changed in, in a large part because if you have your growth bucket draw down, so credit and equity, it, it feels less bad <laughs> than if huh. you thought something that was diversifying all of a sudden wasn't diversifying, right? So I think last year, um, potentially, we still hadn't quite learned the lesson as we were discussing earlier that that these things can all kind of suffer at the same time. And that's true of diversifying strategies too. That's true of alternatives, it's true of CTAs. Unless you have a short-term trend follower, usually in the instant the market drops, you're gonna get all those things to kind of drop too. Mm-hmm. Beauty about alternatives is they don't, they're not gonna mark. So you might just not notice it for, for quite a bit of time. So you have you have some cushion there and by that time they may have rebounded, right? Mm-hmm. But the, the biggest issue that happened with both Europe and the US and you can look ab- abroad elsewhere was that uh, when these things drop, when your equity portfolio, which is supposed to be some return generating mainly, and your fixed income portfolio, which is supposed to be your liquidity provider, right? But then you don't have a job necessarily in your in your private markets bucket. You're in a really tricky position for funding new investments, for funding, um, you know, retirement benefits, healthcare benefits, the like. And so they were all kind of in this illiquidity spiral for a, for a little bit of time. And so they actually had to alter a lot of funds altered their 
investment policy statements, which you're never supposed to do, right? These are supposed to be set in stone and reviewed every couple of years in order to allow them to have wider bands in the in the private uh -huh. markets until things sort of reset. Now, now, to be fair, you're not really getting marked in private markets the way you are in stocks and bonds every tick. Right. So you could kind of ignore that for a while. Um, and they actually might have liked to have been marked down, right? Right. Because it would have reset. That's right. It would have hurt your return. As long as, as, long as the year is. But it would have is, reset. Yeah, but the year was a, <laughs> a, was a loser anyway. You might as well clear the decks, get everything off, and start fresh the following year. Right. You can't really do that with private equity. But it also makes it challenging if you're an investor and you decide, well, what do I do about this illiquidity? I'd like to sell part of my private market book. Well, then where are you pricing it? Because if you go with these inflated asset values and you try to sell them and they know you're a forced seller and they know that the value is likely lower, it actually made it a really tricky environment to kind right. of close those transactions as well. No, no one wants to be a distressed seller. <laughs> no. avoid it. Uh, so let's stick with Europe a little bit and I'm going to ask you to put your econometrician's hat on for a second. U.S., our, our CPI peaked around 9% a year and a half ago or so, and the last CPI print was, what, 3.2%, 3.3% year over year. It seems, and that's with this massive fiscal stimulus, the, the pig is still working his way through the python, Europe seems to be having a harder time wrestling inflation into submission what, why do we think that is? I think that, well, I I believe that the, our U.S. economics team would say that the wage pressures in Europe are, are part of the reason they still remain. Greater than here in the U.S. where there seems to be such a shortage in, in almost every sector of people willing to come in and, and work for a living. We're seeing improvement, and I think we're about 4 or 5%. It could be off on the wage increase number, somewhere around there. Um, so we've got stickier inflation still happening uh, in, in Europe. Europe. And in the US, we were starting to see signs of improvement. Now, who knows what could happen between now and the end of the year? You can't, some, some events you can't predict, but right. um, but we're, we're seeing improvement here. Um, but then you've got emerging markets where we're seeing more improvement on the inflation front mm -hmm. than you're seeing in the, in the US. So. Huh, just kind of interesting that that's what's taking place there. So let's stay with the concept of we had inflation, we now have higher Fed funds rates, and we have what uh, a number of people have been calling very attractive yields, certainly much higher than, than they've been in decades. Um, uh, one of the ag funds of, of I want to say, about seven years duration is 5% for investment grade. We haven't seen that in you know, 10, 15 years. What, how do you work around those sort of numbers? What does that do to the sort of advice you give to clients? So if we just take the U.S. public pension market and kind of separate it from the corporates and, and other institutional investors for a moment, 5% is still below most target returns. Most target returns are still around on average, like let's call it 7%. Right. It might be six and three quarters, but it's not five. Mm -hmm. So in order to take advantage of some of those, so like agency mortgages may be a good trade right now, right? Um, but you probably want to, even that's what, the 30s at seven plus, right? So you even want to think about that more in like a credit long short context than an outright buy. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of a higher rate environment, I still think, look, it, Goldman would probably say they're aggressively neutral on right. on bonds. I the love next, that phrase. The aggressively next, neutral, right? The next three to three to twelve months, because there is still some duration risk. Now, the numbers that have been recently coming out that are showing we're likely to, you know, the, the economy slowing, we we should have avoided a recession. And I will say, Goldman's opinion on this is that there's a twenty percent odd of a recession in the next twelve months. That is still meaningfully higher than the twelve percent in any given year. Right. But it's it's. It's not 100%. It's also not zero. Right. Um, but there's still risk that rates could rise, right? Uh, there still could be something that happens. We get another rate increase. Our view is that there's not going to be another hike this year and that in the back half of next year, we'll start seeing uh, Fed funds come down. Back half of 2024. Yeah. So, so hypothetically, an investor has um, listened to you three years ago when you were screaming about <laughs> inflation is not transitory. It, it actually turned out to be transitory. Transitory just took a whole lot longer <laughs> than everybody expected. Everything in life is transitory. Um, all right, so a couple of years ago, you had said, um, hey, this inflation thing is for real. The Fed's going to raise rates substantially. And given how sensitive longer-dated bonds are to moves up in Fed funds rate, investors should be thinking about shortening their duration. Clients who listened to that advice avoided at least some of the bloodshed last year. Um, 
Now, though, uh, that rates have gone up 500 and something basis points, and you can actually get 5, 5.5% yield, at what point uh, are clients going to want to think about taking advantage and extending duration? You, you mentioned Goldman says there's a 20% chance of uh, recession uh, in the coming uh, 2024, and we may see uh, rate cuts in the back half of 2024. How do you respond to, I have to think clients are asking about duration at this point. What's your response to people who shortened duration a few years ago and and were very successful because of it? Right. So I do get asked quite a bit, when can we start adding duration back to the portfolio? It's probably the third biggest question that I, I have been getting in 2023. A lot of clients weren't able to shorten their duration. Some were. Some can take advantage of, of two years, right? And you could get a pretty good return there. But some couldn't. It's not in their investment policy or they didn't want the reinvestment risk, right? So some are still holding on to those long bonds portfolio. But what I would say is I would I would look to see where you could add duration, but I would be cautious. There's still risk to the upside on rates. And the other part of that I would say that let's say inflation is coming down and it's moderating. It's, it's coming down from a very high level, but it's not coming down to zero, right? So we could see a 3% level for a while. We could mm-hmm. see, and, and that, you know, in the grand scheme of life, grand scheme of history, maybe that's not exorbitant, but it is a higher cost of capital, right? So if you think about where term premiums might end up off of that number, 150, 200 basis points, you're still looking at a pretty high cost of capital compared to the last 10 years, right? right? So for firms and, and for refinancing risk. So if you can add a duration, then where you can and take your pockets, then yes. But I still think there's still a risk to the upside there. And so, huh. again, I would reiterate that Goldman's views right now are pretty neutral on equities and, and bonds the next three to 12 months. Aggressively neutral. Aggr- <laughs> Aggressively I, I like neutral. that. And, so, and, and, you know, you're pointing out that it's a very different regime today. In the 2010s, uh, not only did you have cheap capital, but, but real returns were so low um, given how low inflation was. So now capital costs more. Yes. Inflation is higher. So how do we think about real returns when discussing fixed income? Right. Interestingly enough, there's only you know a handful of allocators that actually benchmark themselves to real returns. And I oh, think, really? It, yes. It's not as popular as, as one would think, particularly when they're, they're having to worry about that on the back end and their payouts mm-hmm. and their liability side. Uh, but I think it's going to become in- increasingly more important. And it might very well, to your point, I believe this is where you get it, it might change what you're looking at and what you evaluate in, in terms of, of your outcomes. You also probably will see a change in benchmarking. If you think about some of the real asset and infrastructure and real estate investments that were benchmarked to CPI plus a spread, for example, or uh-huh. even absolute return, uh, that likely was challenged in the last uh, couple years. So you may see portfolios change as a result of, of benchmarking. I, I do believe the next couple of years will probably start to get more questions on deflation, what that means for portfolios. And that can be very tricky if you haven't figured out your liabilities, because that can hurt the liability side of your balance sheet. And if your liabilities are, are, are really struggling, then the ability of what you can invest in will be truncated. All right. So you said the duration question is the third most asked question you get from <laughs> institutional investors. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, what, what are questions one and two? So number one would be, give me ideas on how to raise liquidity in my portfolio. And, and this is mostly from institutional Mostly investors. from institutional investors. So when someone says, I want more liquidity, is this because they're kind of tied up with long-dated bonds, or is it more because they're tied up with illiquid investments looking for the illiquidity premium? Typically, it's because they're tied up in illiquid investments and they don't want to miss out on a vintage cycle, or they uh-huh. want to. They see good deals that they want to get done. Another option is that their uh, their pension is uh, is is finite, and so they are not able in certain cases to make the same investments that they used to make. But they see interesting deals and they want to find a way to do them without hurting the the liquidity of their structure. Um, and, and those would be the, the two biggest cases, but usually it's it's funding other investments or trying to stay within their policy bounds. The second most asked question I get is around either crisis positions, crisis risk offset positions, or tail risk hedging mm-hmm. um, or diversifying strategies. People are looking for ways, investors I should say, are looking for ways to be protected should this happen again. Um, 
but the you know one interesting statistic I like to mention is if you think of 22 diversifiers that are typically involved in this sort of crisis portfolio or, or in a tail hedge, 10, 22. Take 22 mm-hmm. of the most common ones. There's a paper that that Goldman has done on this. No two in these three periods. So there are no one in these three periods pre 2020 from 2020 through tw- end of 2021 and then post 2022 were positive. Huh. So you need. More, more options than you think to kind of hedge hedge the risk there. But but more than I've heard, probably in the last decade, uh, investors are asking, I would like to put a tail hedge on. How can I do that? What should I be looking at? Let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests, starting with, hey, what are you streaming these days? What kept you entertained during the pandemic? So I don't watch a ton of TV. I will say I am a Shark Tank addict. I am a huge fan of Kevin O'Leary. I I think he's the absolute greatest. But that is really the extent of my TV watching, other than, of course, Bloberg. <laughs> so let me throw a Kevin O'Leary thing at you that you probably haven't seen. Okay. Or, or if you have, um, I, I would be surprised. So uh, there's a young watch geek named Teddy. I'm going to get his last name wrong. Balderas or Balderas say something like that and and he um, is is pretty well known in the timepiece community and somehow he him and Kevin O'Leary became friendly and the two of them go on these watch shopping uh, for lack of a better word expeditions and <laughs> they're just shockingly hilarious so if you're a Kevin O'Leary fan watch it this is him up close and personal talking about why he likes certain things and doesn't and you know teddy's a young guy kevin is a different generation and the interaction it's just charming and if you're a fan of 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 o'leary's you'll find this absolutely delightful thank you for the tip so yeah you 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 will thank me for that for (laughs) sure um let's talk about uh mentors who helped shape your career number one would be my dad we are very close. Uh, we have had very similar careers. We look alike. Uh, he's my best friend by far. Uh, we talk two or three t- times a day. I'm admittedly super codependent. He's awesome. <laughs> um, he he. I was joking earlier. I think Goldman believes me more than he does, and I'm I'm totally joking. He is wonderful, and he's the one person I can trust to give me honest advice. Um, other than that, my I think second grade soccer coach, a guy named Jeff Easter, he. Um, he actually told me to read this book, Golf is Not a Game of Perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but he, he taught me to like, it was a good lesson for being a trader. He taught me to like move on from your last, you know, missed goal. Like just right. stop stressing over it. And then finally, uh, someone I used to work with at Hawaii, my deputy CIO, uh, he has 30 more years probably of investment experience than me, but um, always treated me as an equal, even though I was his boss, and gave me wonderful advice, and to this day is a, a close friend that I can ask anything of. Uh, let's talk about books. What What are some of your favorites? What are you reading right now? I just finished uh, The Wager and Endurance, and... Um, Wait, so The Wager, I'm not familiar with. Endurance is the Shackleton yes, story, so which is insane. I'm, I can't believe that's never so been made good. into a movie that, that anyone knows of. Um, what's The Wager? The Wager is a shipwreck, actually, uh, around the same area, but uh, is a sh- true story of a shipwreck. Um, and similar to the reasons I like the Shackelford story, it's an interesting examination of leadership in crisis. And also, it helps me when I'm running in the morning and I'm tired. I'm like, well, I have eaten and I've had water and right. I'm not covered in lice. <laughs> right. right. Or, or sub sub-zero temperature with leopard seals oh, trying to man. eat you. It's, I know. It's, it's, Incredible story. I, I think I just read not too long ago that they found the Shackelford ship. The the uh, um, No way. And and it's it, the water is so cold, everything is preserved. Oh, Normally it. the wood would have rotted away a long time ago, but nothing eats it away because it's barely above freezing most it's of unbelievable the, the the shackleford story really struck me because if you look at the, the wager i won't this is not a spoiler but they're mostly negative in this story and he is just like continually positive and right. it's incredible it's just it's a great story in leadership like if you would have told me hey you're going to lose your ship and you're stuck somewhere in the antarctic my assumption is you're a goner you have no chance of survival yes like the fact that uh, if you if you've never read the book endurance it's just one of the most amazing. 
it, it couldn't be fiction because it just wouldn't be believable. Right. The fact that it's a true story makes it really amazing. Right, right, yes. So two Incredible books, book. The Wager and Endurance. I, I'm going to have to check out The Wager. Um, our final two questions. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad interested in a career in either investment or risk management or public pensions or anything else in finance? I think I would encourage them to know the full scope of what jobs you can have in investments. You can be in marketing, you can be in communications. We need writers. Everybody needs good writers these days. Uh, we need good public speakers. We also need traders, we need PMs, we need leaders, uh, we need HR, need legal. So uh, it always strikes me how the uh, young people seem to think you're just a banker or you're a trader. Nope, there's a lot of other things. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today you wish you knew, let, let's say, 20 years ago <laughs> Thank you. When, you, when you first got it started? That no one knows all the right answers all the time. They all act like they do, but they don't. And if you get it wrong, they've gotten it wrong, too. Really interesting. Elizabeth, thank you for being so generous with your time. This was absolutely fascinating. Thank you for having me. We have been speaking with Elizabeth Taylor slash Elizabeth Burton uh, of Goldman Sachs Asset Management. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out any of the 500 previous conversations we've had over the past eight years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your favorite podcast. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz or at Barry underscore Ritholtz. Follow all of the Bloomberg family of podcasts on Twitter at podcast. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps us put these conversations together each week. Anna Luke is my producer. Sean Russo is my researcher. Atika Valbron is my project manager. Sam Danziger is my audio engineer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.